Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Pete Pranica, TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies, and your host for the program. This is episode 58, brought to you today by DraftKings Sportsbook. You know, the first Sunday of the NFL season is now here, and the excitement continues with DraftKings Sportsbook. They're an official sports betting partner of the NFL, and they're giving all new customers a can't-miss offer to celebrate the return of the NFL season. Here's what DraftKings is doing. Bet just $1 on any football game this weekend, and you will get $200 in free bets instantly, no matter what. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving all new customers $200 in free bets instantly when they bet at least $1 on any football game. DraftKings is safe, reliable, and secure, making it easy for you to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code TBPN to receive $200 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any week one game. That's promo code TBPN to get your free $200 in free bets instantly this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. You must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Well, the NFL season is about to begin. The NBA season is still a few weeks away from the opening of training camp, which will be the end of September. And then the Grizzlies will start their preseason schedule on Tuesday, October the 5th, when they host the NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks. But by and large, everything is relatively quiet right now. I think this might be the only time of the year where Adrian Wojnarowski might actually put his cell phone down for a moment uh, because this is, this is kind of kind of a dead time right now. A couple of uh, bits of news as far as the Memphis Grizzlies are concerned. And um, number one, uh, this is a reported transaction. It is not official yet. It cannot be consummated until September the 15th. Uh, you remember that the Grizzlies traded with Minnesota, got Juancho Hernan Gomez in a deal. He is being, according to reports, being moved on to Boston for Chris Dunn and Carson Edwards. Now, because it would be a second consecutive trade for Aaron and Gomez. Uh, they have to wait till September the 15th. That's my understanding of it. So this deal is not official. It, it, it is reported that it will happen. For the Grizzlies, Chris Dunn, you know, another wing with size, uh, good defensive intensity. But when you look at it going forward, he has a $5 million expiring contract. Potentially this could be a, a chip of some sort. Uh, going forward, if uh, the Grizzlies choose to do that, it's another expiring contract. I think Chris Dunn's a nice player. I, I think when you look at all the, the deals reported and consummated that the Grizzlies have done, bringing guys in and out, I, I think ultimately Jared Culver is, is is the guy that really that they wanted. And a lot of this is to create a little bit more cap room. And, and a lot of this is all about financial considerations with the CBA that really goes beyond my limited understanding. <laughs> so um, I'll be really, really be intrigued to see. I would imagine Chris Dunn's going to be in, in training camp. Whether or not Carson Edwards is or not, I, I don't know. You also have Sam Merrill, who was obtained from Milwaukee in the Grayson Allen deal. Is, is he part of the Grizzlies' plans going forward? I have no idea. So I think there are still potentially other dominoes that may fall with personnel as far as the Grizzlies are concerned. But right now... Everything is, is super quiet. This deal cannot be consummated, as I said, until September the 15th. So uh, th- there just can't be anything else going on right now. The one thing that I that we do know 
And this had been talked about when they actually retired from the NBA. But the Grizzlies will have their first two jerseys retired this year. Zach Randolph and Tony Allen will both have their jerseys retired. Zach will have his retired on December the 11th, a home game against the Houston Rockets. Tony Allen will have his jersey retired on January 28th when the Grizzlies are home to the Utah Jazz. Every once in a while, when when we're just like having discussions uh, among those of us in the broadcast crew, you, you, you do talk about number retirement and, and what should the criteria be. And I, I think more than anything else, when you decide to retire a jersey, it, it's not because the guy was a multiple-time All-Star or Defensive Player of the Year or, or any particular accolade or that they were part of a championship team. I think you have to look first and foremost at what a particular player meant to your franchise. Zach Randolph, borderline maybe Hall of Fame player, uh, compiled some tremendous numbers over a long career. Not sure that he's going to get into Springfield. But when you think about what he meant to this franchise, when you think about the journey that he took going from a player that really nobody seemed to want because of his off-court situations that he had in Portland and in New York and with the Los Angeles Clippers. And basically, Memphis was his last chance. And and he grew up um, and, and made the most of it. And I think it was an interesting dynamic between Zach and Memphis. I was with Zach in Portland when he got drafted. And he... For, for any number of reasons, it just it just didn't fit, whether it was the culture, whether it was his teammates, whether it was the Pacific Northwest. I mean, here's a kid from Marion, Indiana, going to the Pacific Northwest. I mean, you talk about some pretty serious culture shock. That, that certainly would qualify. Um, and also, look, he was 19 years old, drafted out of Michigan State, and um, it, was, it was a rough go for him. And I am so proud of Zach Randolph because he has gone from a guy who – made some very questionable decisions in terms of the people that he hung out with um, and, and some of the things that he did in his youth. But as he grew up, as he became a husband, as he became a father, as he became a family man, uh, he's a totally different guy. Uh, still big-hearted, as he always was, um, but I think really has, has grown and matured into a, a very, very thoughtful and considerate and and just really one of the the best people I think the Grizzlies have have ever had which when you think about when he was coming to the Grizzlies there was some public outcry to owner Michael Heisley what are you doing and Michael Heisley in the stories that I have been told told Zach Randolph look this might be your last chance you screw up you're going to be on the next bus out of town and uh, and Zach certainly uh put his indiscretions of the past behind him. And uh, I still say he could run for mayor and he would win in a landslide. And so I think it really is fitting that Zach Randolph will be the first Grizzly to have his number retired. I, I think that that is very, very fitting. And I would say that that would be, even be the case, even if Marcus Gasol and Mike Conley were already retired and you had four guys like, okay, who goes first? I, th- I still think Zach is is the proper choice. Um, Tony Allen, uh, the number nine, raised to the Raptors January the 28th uh, against the Utah Jazz. If anyone had said 
at the media availability when Tony Allen came from Boston and was standing in the middle of the Grizzlies locker room in front of a very, very small media contingent. There was, there was no, there was no press conference, uh, you know, like we typically would have where, you know, you've got uh, Zach Kleiman and the coach, uh, Taylor Jenkins and the player at the podium, nothing like that. This, this was just Tony Allen standing in the middle of the Grizzlies locker room when he came over from the Boston Celtics. And if anybody would have said at that point, at that media gathering, if anybody would have suggested Tony Allen's number nine is going to hang in the rafters at FedEx form, you you would have been checking them for substances because it, it just, it, it didn't move the needle. I think people like, okay, okay Tony Allen, uh, Glenn Cyprian, who uh, knew him at Oklahoma State and, you know, was now in Memphis. Okay, so he kind of recruited him. And uh, obviously he knew Chris Wallace because Chris Wallace had been in Boston. So, you know, you looked at it and said, okay, well, you know, they're bringing in a guy that they know. And, okay, that's really cool. Nice. No one, again, could have anticipated the effect that Tony Allen would have not only on his basketball team, but on this city. And I find it interesting year after year after year, you have teams sitting down with marketing firms and publicity firms, and they're trying to come up with some type of slogan, some type of hashtag that they're going to put on all their social media accounts. And they're, they're thinking and they're doing research and they're doing market research and trying to figure out, you know, what can we possibly say that is going to fire up our fan base? And, for my money, the best slogans, the best hashtags, the best anything are things that come up organically. Nobody, but nobody would have thought that a post-game interview with Rob Fisher after the Grizzlies beat the Oklahoma City Thunder, and, and I remember that I know at least Rudy Gay was out of, out of that game. There may have been other injuries, um, and Kevin Durant was going off, and you know, Rob Fisher says, man, uh, that was a hell of a game. You know, and, and Tony says, man, it's all heart, grit, grind. And and, and, it, and it immediately resonated with all of us. And I think that when we were sitting there at the broadcast table and listening to Rob do that interview with Tony and Zach Randolph pats him on the head, Marcus Saul walks by and pats him on the head, and it was not simply the words that Tony said, hey, it's all about, it's all heart, it's grit, grind, but it was the reaction of the teammates. And if you watch that interview in totality, the next question that Rob asks Tony Allen is, well, what was the talk at halftime? Because this was a rally by the Grizzlies. This was not a, this was not a dominant wire-to-wire victory. I mean, this was, this was really, really a gutty win for the Grizzlies. And Tony Allen said that Lionel Holland said, you guys are acting like, like you don't think you can win this game. And uh, so it's a neat confluence of the way that Lionel Hollins approached the game, Tony Allen approached the game, and, and the fact that they were, they were able to pull out that improbable victory uh, at Oklahoma City with, with Kevin Durant going crazy. So uh, I'm thrilled for Tony. I'm thrilled for Zach. The, these guys have been great. Uh, they've been great players. Obviously, they were crucial to the Grizzlies getting to the Western Conference Finals. They have remained involved in the community, um, and they remain ambassadors for the team. And eventually, Marc Gasol, Mike Conley will have their numbers uh, retired. But those guys are still playing. Marc Gasol with the uh, Los Angeles Lakers and Mike Conley with the Utah Jazz. So uh, they are not done just yet, but their their day will come, and we will have more uh, jerseys hanging and uh, it's pretty cool 
again, you look at those four players, and Zach Randolph is a, a borderline Hall of Fame guy. I don't think Mike Conley, again, might be a borderline uh, guy for Springfield. Marcus Saul might have the best chance of the four simply because it's not the NBA Hall of Fame. It is the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, and obviously Mark's very distinguished overseas career, international career, with what he did for, with the Spanish national team. That certainly uh, might push him over the edge and get him into Springfield. And and, and if not him, I, I certainly think Pau Gasol is a Hall of Famer. So that's uh, that's pretty much all the news that's fit to print as far as the, the NBA is concerned. Do want to send along... Best wishes to a couple of really class guys uh, as radio broadcasters that decided to hang up their microphones. Ted Davis, after a long tenure with the Milwaukee Bucks, coming to Milwaukee from the Dallas Mavericks, he decided that, uh, look, you win a championship and there's going to be a parade in Milwaukee. Good time to hang up the microphone. So Ted Davis, uh, one of the veteran NBA radio voices, is hanging up his microphone. He's got a ring, Mike Inglis. The radio voice of the Miami Heat has multiple rings, and Mike Inglis has also decided to call it quits. And uh, so we wish them all the best in their retirement, and uh, they they certainly will be missed. A couple of really class guys. Always enjoyed seeing them out on the road, and um, life goes on. Life goes on. I'm not ready to retire, by the way. Anybody hoping that I'm going to retire soon? Sorry. Uh, you're, You're stuck with me for the foreseeable future. You are stuck with me for the foreseeable future and certainly for the 21-22 NBA season. One of the things that we talked about a couple episodes ago with Rob Fisher was the NBA schedule. And uh, he likes to pick out the back-to-backs and when you've got long homestands and long road trips and, uh, and things of that nature. Have you ever wondered exactly how the NBA schedule comes to be? It is an extremely intriguing process used to be done by hand. It is now done by computer. And our friend of the program today is Evan Wash, Executive Vice President of Basketball Analytics for the NBA, and he's going to tell us all about how the schedule is put together in uh, the 21st century. But first, we'll tell you that the Grizz Weekly Grind is being brought to you by the Hoop City Basketball Club. Since 2005, their mission has been to assist young student-athletes in grades 1 through 12 in developing a strong work ethic with discipline, responsibility, and accountability. Hoop City has helped young men be great on the court and in the community. Their alumni include major college and NBA players. Now, if you'd like more information on how to become part of this great sports and character-building club, log on to HoopCityBC.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at HoopBC. As they say, it's in our blood. It's who we are in Hoop City. Check it out. Uh, the fall leagues are going to be coming. If you want to get your young person involved, please do go to hoopcitybc.com. All right. How do you put this schedule together? How many combinations and permutations are there? Why is the schedule set up the way that it is? For the answers to these and other intriguing schedule questions, here's our friend of the program today, Evan Wash. Evan, I want to go back to a story that I was told many years ago before you joined the NBA. Matt Winnick was in charge of the schedule. And I had always heard this story that Matt Winnick would go to a cabin in upstate New York with a lot of pieces of paper and calendars and schedules, and he would do the NBA schedule by hand. Is that accurate or is that that some old wives' tale? 
Well, I wasn't here, so I, I, I certainly can't con- <laughs> confirm it. Um, I don't know where the cabin is, and I've never seen the pieces of paper. But uh, yes, I've, I've heard similar tales. But by hand, I think evolved over the years uh, into what you know what I sort of lovingly lovingly used to call a, a virtual whiteboard. That you don't have to do a schedule physically by hand to be doing it by hand. Meaning, if you're just typing in the game and the date that's effectively doing a schedule by hand, which of course is, is quite different than we have, how we do it today. But, but yes, I would assume that at some point in his 30 years, uh, the use of, of paper and, and cabins and calendars was, was, was part of the process. So Evan, what is the modern process now? Because the league and the competition committee have been very adamant about, we're not going to have four and fives. We want to minimize back-to-backs. You're dealing with arenas that have multiple tenants, sometimes another NBA team, NHL team, uh, uh, venues that have a lot of concerts. How do you assimilate all this information and ultimately spit out a schedule? Yeah, so so we use uh, something called computer optimization, where we have a, a proprietary software we built about six or seven years ago. Um, and it's, it's built on the notion that uh, humans can describe through something called constraints, what we want to see in a schedule or not see in a schedule. And so a constraint may be around minimizing the number or type of back-to-backs. It may be around travel, travel patterns, travel miles, might be national television related, uh, local, local team business related around nights of the week or particular opponents to spread out over the course of the season. Uh, And what we can do is we can actually feed in these constraints to the scheduling optimization system that will then go sift through literally billions of potential schedules and bring back to us the ones that best satisfy all the constraints that we fed in. And um, there's a there's a stat out there, which is uh, often actually hard to even uh, get your head around, but there are more possible combinations of an NBA schedule than there are atoms in the universe, uh, which which is you, know, you hear that and you're like, well, that has to be untrue, and, it, and it's actually very true, and it's they're not even close, and it's just it sort of gets down to the, the the type of math of combinatorics and how this all plays out, and so a human can't possibly find the best schedule, and frankly, even our most powerful computers can't find the best schedule. They can just find a good one out of all those possibilities, and so it's a largely computerized process, but there's still a lot of manual effort, right? Of course. The, the most manual is we have to tell the computer what to look for. Um, but we also do do a what I would call sort of a manual massaging of the schedule on both the front end and the back end. We are feeding into the computer a lot of hints about road trips to, to fill in or the key national TV windows that we're targeting, Christmas Day, opening week, et cetera. And then on the back end, we're doing a lot of manual moves based on what comes out of the optimization system to really refine it in ways you know, that, that ultimately address our goals. And in those processes, we uh, are assisted by a, a, a gentleman named Arthur Steiker, um, who's been a consultant with the league for 30 years and actually worked hand in hand with Matt. So we do still have some of that same uh, cabin, white paper, calendar expertise uh, working with us. And, and Arthur is an incredibly helpful part of that process. Um, so I would say it's, it's you know, part man, part machine at this point. Our friend of the program today on the Grizz Weekly Grind is Evan Wash. He is the Executive Vice President of Basketball Strategy and Analytics for the NBA, among his many responsibilities, helping to put together the NBA schedule. When you send a draft of the schedule out, some teams are going to come back and and are, are they going to say, yeah, we really don't like this, but is there really anything that you can do once 
you've sent out a draft and they're going to say, well, we don't like this or we don't like that. Can you possibly change it? Is there a window to change? There is. And so historically, what, what we try to do is send draft schedules, give teams a couple of days to comment, and then give ourselves a few days after that to address as many of those comments as we can before releasing a final schedule. So that whole process draft to final was, was typically over about a week. The last couple of years through the bubble, the two halves of, of the 72-game season last year, and then, and then this uh, season coming up, we felt very compressed in terms of the time we had to release these schedules just because the off-season breaks were shorter than they normally are. Teams are eager to get their schedules, get their, their season plans underway. And so we've compressed those uh, comment, those draft to final timeframes into a matter of a few days at this point. Uh, and so with respect to this schedule we just released, we, we sent drafts to teams on Tuesday. Uh, comments were due by Wednesday. And we sent them their final versions back on Thursday to prepare for the Friday release. So it was a, a much more compressed time frame. I will say, because we've now been doing this, uh, this, this new team that's been involved, you know, myself, Tom Corelli from our scheduling group, um, Patrick Harrell, Gene Lee, Maparese, a bunch of other folks at the league office who, who work on this. We've been doing it long enough that we know generally what teams as a whole and teams individually like and expect to see. And so we're able to cater to that. And we've made such progress in the last seven years to sort of move the needle on a lot of these key issues that we don't get the volume of comments that we used to get. So the, you know, the, the number of pages that come back from teams is, is a lot less than it used to be. Um, the number of times a team, you know, sort of feels the need to uh, elevate complaints that they don't feel are being addressed is, is you know, far, far rarer than it was you know, five or 10 years ago. So that, that's been a net positive and I think speaks to the priority we've, priority we've placed on the basketball side. But we, we are able to address it uh, sometimes. And, and our general philosophy is that once teams have seen drafts, uh, it can't be the case that we're making a change for one team that's going to then disadvantage some other team because obviously the schedule is interconnected. Teams don't play themselves. So anytime you're making a change to one team schedule, by definition, it is impacting at least one other team schedule. And so we sort of have this philosophy that something either has to be mutually beneficial, meaning it helps all teams involved, or is beneficial to the team that asks for the, the change without negatively or unduly impacting uh, other teams. And that's, that's an important you know, protocol for us to follow in that draft to final process. We talk about constraints, and I know that I'm guessing that some of these are dictated by the competition committee, which I know no four and fives, if at all possible, limiting five and seven nights trying to make sure that teams don't have a rest advantage or disadvantage. What, what are some of the constraints? What are your prime constraints? And, and do those come from working with the competition committee? They absolutely do. Uh, and, and if you think about from a basketball side, you're playing 82 games in roughly 177 days. So you're, you're, you're playing just about once every other day when you, when you take out the all-star break, which means you in theory could play a schedule that's, roughly zero back-to-backs, but a game every other day, right, over the course of the six-month season. Now, that may look great. We say, hey, look, we eliminated back-to-backs, but the cost of doing that would be horrible travel as well as really no time for teams to rest and recover between games and get in practices because many of our teams don't even practice unless they have two or three days off between games. And so what we've learned over the years in this uh, ongoing crusade we have to minimize the number of back-to-backs, we took them from roughly 20 per team back in 2014 all the way down to the 13 and a half we're at this year. 
there's a trade-off that comes with that. There's less practice time. There's less days off. There's, there's more, you know, more travel to find an opponent that can avoid that back-to-back that comes with it. And we've just started to turn around a bit and say, you know what, this may not be the only thing to focus on. And so we've worked with the competition committee on what are some other ways that we can think about building in the proper rest recovery and, and travel benefits. Um, and that's where this idea of, of the series concept came in. And that was a conversation we've had extensively with not just the competition committee, but the players association and the general managers over the past few years. And, and a, a series is when we have two teams playing consecutive games in the same place, right? So team A goes and plays at team B two games in a row. And what that does is that saves a trip for team A later in the season. They don't have to go back and visit team B a second time. And we, we piloted that in the, in the 2021 season last year, we, you know, we had about 60 of those on the schedule. Uh, the, the trade-off there, of course, is there's potential risk to attendance and gate in a local market if you have the same opponent there two nights in a row or, or two out of three nights. And so we didn't really get a feel for that last year. Um, but we asked the competition committee and GMs after the season and said, did, did you find that to be a benefit? And they said, absolutely, because it meant we didn't have to travel for that second game. And that's always a benefit as the road team. So it's something we're trying again this season although we have roughly half the number of them, because what we want to do now is test what the impact actually is on the fan side. Do, to, does it impact attendance and gate for those games, which we couldn't really test last year. So that was all guided by the competition committee. We've made a bunch of strides in travel because that's been a, an issue flagged um, by our team. So looking at playing consecutive games in LA, you know, Lakers and Clippers, when a team is on the road, there, reducing the single game road trips, which is a big focus because every time you have a single game road trip, that means an additional flight, you know, out and back as opposed to a two or three game road trip where you're pairing up those games. And so we've tried to move the needle on all of these things in the direction that our teams have sent us. And the, the loud, largest voice for that is, is the competition committee. One of the things that you also work on, and we work together on the officiating advisory council is, and I remember David Stern saying there is no more scrutinized or metricized, if that's even a word, group in professional sports than our officials in the NBA. What is your work with the NBA officiating group and, and, and quantifying the quality of their performance? Yeah. So, so my group essentially partners with Monty uh, and his development advisors. And, and what we do is we have a team of game reviewers uh, whose sole job it is to review games in painstaking detail and essentially assess the quality and accuracy of every officiating decision that's made in every game. And so obviously we publicly release the last two minute reports, which uh, comment on the accuracy of decisions made in the last two minutes of close games, well, games that got within three points or fewer in the last two minutes. Um, But we are doing full 48 minute reviews for all games. uh, And that creates an incredibly robust data set, not just by referee, but by team, by play type, by time in the season, and we can look at all sorts of, of data analyses and trends around the performance of the staff, the performance of individual officials, uh, and that does a few things. One is that helps Monty and his staff uh, identify opportunities for development for, for individual referees in their, in their training and development plans. Uh, it aids in the decision around which referees will qualify for the playoffs or ultimately be promoted into you know, crew chief assignments, um, advance in the playoffs. And so it's a, it's a real partnership with 
Mani, who's tasked with actually, you know, hire, recruiting, hiring, training, and developing referees. This is just another tool in his toolkit that we can provide him uh, on the overall performance of, of individuals and the staff. Evan, one last question for you. You had mentioned how compressed everything has been because we had the bubble season, then we had a 72-game season. We have careened from the finals to uh, the combine to the draft to summer league and a very, very short offseason. How have you and your colleagues with the NBA dealt with the compression and just getting ready to, to play another NBA season with very, very little offseason for you guys? Yeah, so this one this one certainly seems a lot longer than the last one, uh, which which was only about ten weeks, and uh, this one will be more like thirteen. Uh, so we so we have a little little bit of extra buffer there, but it's you know we've been running on adrenaline for a year and a half. It's just the reality of what we and most businesses have had to do through the pandemic to uh, to stay afloat and, and and deal with the challenges as they've come. Uh, from a scheduling perspective, you know that the the challenge there was we've now done four schedules in the last 14 months we, we had to do a bubble schedule we divided last season into two halves so we released a first half and then a second half schedule and now we just completed a full season schedule so i've said uh knock on wood my hope is that we're not doing any scheduling for another 10 months um because if the season goes well we will be we'll be in more normal course but um we actually only ended up getting the the schedule out about a week later than we normally would we we typically target that you know second week of august time frame and we were a week beyond that this time um again through some of those efficiencies we've gained so uh the off season for for at least the scheduling staff will look close enough to uh to what a normal one does but certainly it has not been uh, the, the most restful 18-month period for us or anyone in the NBA ecosystem. Indeed, indeed. Evan, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate our conversations all the time because it, it takes us a little bit behind the curtain to see what, what all goes on in the NBA. And there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that people have, have no idea, and, and you and your staff is a big part of that. Appreciate it, Pete. Thanks. Our thanks to Evan Wash for visiting with us as our friend of the program to discuss the process by which the NBA schedule is made. They do come out with literally hundreds of different schedules, and it's a matter of picking what I would probably call the least worst schedule because everybody's going to have a gripe. Everybody's going to have a beef. There's going to be something that somebody's unhappy about, and there is no perfect schedule because you can't you can't appease all 30 teams and get them to be completely happy with everything. And, you know, when we visit with other broadcasters, they'll say, well, you know, there, there's this part of the season where it gets really, really hard. The travel's really hard or the weather's going to be bad or, or too many back-to-backs or, or, or whatever it is. I think Evan makes a very interesting point about trying to reduce the number of back-to-backs. And I remember when I, when I started doing games with the Portland Trailblazers, in the late 90s, we might have 22 back-to-backs, which that got to be really, really difficult. And the first couple of years that I was with the Trailblazers, for reasons I, I, I can't fathom, we weren't allowed on the team charter, so we had to fly commercially. And that made our lives very, very difficult. But the one thing is that if you do have more back-to-backs, then you balance that out by having maybe two, maybe every once in a great while, you may have three consecutive days off. And like Evan says, if, if you had no back-to-backs and you play every other day, that's fine. But then usually on that off day, you're traveling and there isn't time for practice. And so it's it, it remains to be seen how this will all shake out because they're, they're cutting back-to-backs back. 
But what it also does, it also cuts back on the amount of practice time that teams can have. So is, is 13, 14, is that the appropriate number of back-to-backs? Should it be a little higher? And if it's a little higher, is that really a bad thing? I think everybody's gotten to this point where more fewer back-to-backs. We need fewer back-to-backs. Fewer, 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 fewer. But there, there does come a point where fewer back-to-backs will also equate to less practice time. And that's one of the things that particularly, you know, whether it was the, the bubble or the 72-game season last year, hey, we don't have enough practice time. And that was one of the coaches' frequent refrains. Hey, you know, we, we just don't have enough practice time. We need more practice time. So we'll see how all that plays out. But really appreciate Evan Wash for visiting with us. Also, thanks to Jim LaBombard of the NBA Media Relations and Public Relations Office for setting that up. Appreciate that. Always good to talk with somebody from the league office and uh, – and get it from the guy who actually puts the schedule together, has actually has his hands on the wheel when the NBA schedule is put together. Well, that does it for this edition of the Grizz Weekly Grind. This has been episode 58 of the Grizz Weekly Grind. Our thanks to Hoop City Basketball Club and also to DraftKings Sportsbook for their continued support of the Grizz Weekly Grind. I'm Pete Pranica. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.